Hi there, everyone. I'm Jared. And I'm Zanita. Let's go live. Today we have an awesome guest. He is a motivational speaker, a leadership and personal development trainer. He's been a pastor, he's written some books, and every time I hear this guy say something, I just have to sit in silence for a few minutes and ponder. So he has a lot of wisdom to impart, and I'm really excited to be having him on. Everyone, meet Eddie Hippolyte. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, that's a kind introduction. No pressure, no pressure, Zanita. No No pressure, Zanita. (laughs) I asked Jared this before, Eddie, what has been the highlight of your day so far? I think the highlight of my day, my daughter came from college today. And, you know, she just drove in, picked up a few things from home and headed out. But she came in, said hello, gave me a hug, said peace, and she was gone. Yeah. <laughs> it was a good highlight to the day because I haven't seen her for a few days now. You know, so, you know, we're kind of semi-empty nesters now that she's at university. So that was definitely the highlight today. Well, Eddie, you've had a lot of different roles over the years. I follow you on Instagram and recently I heard you say, I help stuck people unstick themselves, which I thought was great. But can you tell us a little bit about what life currently looks like for you? Life looks like being in the area of ministry, but ministry being more to the culture now. In terms of my pastoral career, I always worked equally as much in the church as I did in the culture. And I've been fortunate to always have that as a part of the future of my ministry, the way my ministry manifested itself. But now I am more in the culture than I am in the church. So never seen myself as being outside of ministry. Ministry now is just not pastoring. So I still work with churches. I still work with ministers, still work in the area of resilience. But now it's working with outside organizations. Um, I'm in my writing season. I've been in my writing season for a couple of years now. So kind of writing and speaking. And it's, it's a combination of all, of all of those things now. It's good. You know, when Rona crashed the party, the, the global party, like everybody else, we had to just refigure how it is that we do what we do. And so it meant that so much more of my work was online. So over the past two years, I've travel the globe online <laughs> but what it's done it has opened up so much good relationships and so much good connections yeah, yeah. now one of your most recent projects just on that is four questions yeah <laughs> and they're really big questions and we can yeah. talk a little bit about that today <laughs> but in in the start of that project you're writing about how corona impacted the world and changed many people's outlook and It reminds me of what Zanita said about helping stuck people get unstuck. How have Mm -hmm. you seen that this recent season, this past few years we've been traveling through, how is it getting people stuck? What do you think has changed for people that's really messing up with their heads and changing what they thought their plan for their lives was? I think what COVID did was disrupt our imagining of the world. You know, you go to college, go to uni, get a job, get a career, have a family, have job security, travel, do all of that stuff. In a minute, COVID took everything, literally everything, you know, and then governments shut down countries. Governments told you you couldn't come out of your house. (laughs) Governments limited your freedom. There was just so much upheaval. And I think what it did was forced everybody, well, not at first reimagine the world, 
but actually take a stark look at the world. You know, these things that we call freedoms, like so many people kind of realize that we have the freedom to believe that we're free until our freedom's taken. And so I think what it did was it put everybody in the place of reimagining what the world could be. I remember being in a conversation with four guys from my church plant in London, and I knew them when they were teenagers. Four of us got in a Zoom chat just together, and they're all husbands and fathers. And it was interesting talking to them and seeing how they were having to navigate being at home that the children understand daddy at home, but the children don't understand professional working daddy. But now professional working daddy is having to work at home. And the kids can't understand why I'm shutting the office door and why I'm keeping the kids out. And we just got into this whole deep conversation where we began to realize that we had made work the center of our worlds mm -hmm. and everything else was the satellite around which our lives navigated. But now home was the center. And it was for them the shift of now making home the center and making work a satellite. <laughs> in home at the center and family at the center. And so I think what COVID did was disrupt the way everybody saw the world, the way in which they were able to relate to the world and the way in which the world related to them. And I think that's why it was such a punch in the gut and such a massive awakening. And we saw it in the church, I think, more than anything else. We saw it throughout Christendom and the churches and the way the church functions. You also talk about this idea that we can't have control of a future we haven't yet arrived at, which is sort of mm. what we're talking about here with the unknowns mm. of the pandemic, mm. and that the unknown variables make it impossible to do that. So how do we respond to, I guess, the inevitability of change and unpredictability in this world? I think the only place that we can respond to it is in the now because that's all we have you know i always say you can't go back and change what happened because it's set in stone and you can't go to the future and rearrange something that hasn't happened yet but what you can do in the present it's like the conviction of paul where paul says listen i'm pressing towards something and i haven't already reached so i don't want to act like i've already reached but resolving or forgetting what's behind me in the present I'm deciding who I am, and then I'm allowing that person to move forward with me. And I think the only way we get a modicum of control over the future is to be settled with who we are in the present, settled with how we dream about the future, establish the values, establish the narratives, establish the conversations that you want to meet you in the future, and then move in that direction. <laughs> If it changes along the way, it changes, but there are going to be fundamental things about you that are going to remain and mature and develop so that once you get there, you, you haven't lost sight of who you are. You have a clear understanding of who you are. And Eddie, one of the things that you talk about or write about quite a lot is the past that, you know, what you're saying about establishing ourselves in the future and having that solid foundation, you've kind of talked about, I guess, maybe I'm putting it in my own words here, but reframing our stories or, or understanding mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. the past so that we can have that solid foundation yeah. in the future. Yeah. Because for many people, the past disrupts their present. It knocks them off kilter or it, mm -hmm. it's an excuse or it's something they carry with them that enables them to 
maybe make excuses for their life or it can really upset them. You know, many times traumas in our past impact how we are in the present. But you've done a lot of work in taking charge of our past to stabilize our present, to look forward to that future. Can you just explore that a little bit with us? From my own journey, and I said it in Living From Here, my second book, that I broke a lot of things back there. (laughs) And a lot of people, there are some people who... They were worse off for being around me because of who I was back there. But then at the same time, there are people who were blessed because of me back there. So there's a lot of things that I can't change about the past. But I think that the one thing that I can do is go back and examine my attitudes and my motives and my mindset, not to bring it forward, but to have an explanation uh, so that I don't torture myself. You know, there are some bones that you'll dig them up just to realize, nah, there ain't nothing to be found there. <laughs> you know, I ain't exhuming them bones at all. There's nothing to be found here. And so not everything about the past is going to be resolvable. Not everything about the past you're going to find healing from. But you cannot be afraid to look. You cannot be afraid to ask. You cannot be afraid to have the conversations because there are going to be things that enable you to settle who you are now. Not only that, I don't want to be a a revisionist. (laughs) I don't want to be a revisionist of my history, but I do want to reclaim some of the stories. I do want to look at the stories in different ways. Like when my father said to me, stand your ground if he battles like a man at my engagement party. And I said, yes, that I will. Thank you. Thank you. But in the privacy of my mind, I was what, like what you did for me. Shut man, ain't no one listening to you, man. Move. But obviously I couldn't say that, you know, because my dad walked away when I was five and I was never raised by my dad. He never came back into the home again. But I realized in my 15th year of marriage, what he was saying to me when Yvonne and I hit an impasse and he was saying, stand your ground and fight your battles like a man. You know, I realized that he was saying, I know what's in me and I know it's going to come up in you. And when it does come up in you, you need to be more for yours than I was for you. So stand your ground and fight your battles like a man. And so, you know, that wasn't revisionist of me. That was just the maturity that comes with time and the honesty that comes with time and realizing um, and using that grace and using that learning and using the little maturity you get from that space of growth and applying it to your journey. On the topic of your journey, um, obviously you haven't always been a motivational speaker and a writer and you've got your own story. What was the turning point when you were young to where you got today? What was it that changed for you that made you change direction? It's interesting. Whenever I do motivational developmental work, this question always comes up. And I work in secular spaces. And I've developed the discipline and the skill of consistently talking about God in secular spaces without ever mentioning God. <laughs> because it is, a, it is a skill to move from an ethical and a value-structured um, way. I can talk about God all day long. I can talk from a God-centeredness without people assuming I'm a Christian or especially that I'm a minister. But the question always comes up like, but what was it? (laughs) 
at 17, I got saved under the preaching of the late, great Dick Barron in London. I had a very troubled teenage um, from 14 to 17, you know, through the juvenile court system, community home schools, approved schools, detention centers. And at 17, I got saved. At 19, I walked away. And then at 25, I got found again. <laughs> and those were the two real poles. At 17, meeting God for the first time, walking away at 19, and then at 25, remembering I need him. You know what I mean? Because, you know, who I didn't decide to be, who I didn't nail down that I was going to be in my teenage years, I just became that in my 20s with a vengeance. So my 20s was an adult replay of those turbulent teenage years. And at those two poles, it was Jesus Christ. It was a real dynamic intervention of the divine into my, into my lived experience. It was a real kind of coming of spiritual age and God writing different things into myself, especially as a 25-year-old, about who I was and who I could be. I remember looking at my life from 25 in five-year increments, who I was from 5 to 10, who I was from 10 to 15, 15 to 20, 20 to 25. And God just showed me a different future. At 17 and at 25, it was my experience of God that were the two real earth-shifting world transformational spaces. He enters human lives, makes promises, keeps his promises, stays in the journey with us, stays in the story with us. I always say I'm the product of a praying mother and the grace of God. <laughs> I'm curious, Eddie, to know what you've learned reflecting on what you've just been saying, shifting from, I guess, preaching in churches and pastoring. That's your main focus. And now moving into the secular space a lot more. What have you learned both about God, but also about how to communicate God? Because I think a lot of Adventists oftentimes have trouble communicating God to the secular community around them. You know, we all might have our conversion experience or we know why we believe in God, but we have trouble actually passing that on. What have you learned about telling your story, sharing your story in spaces that perhaps has surprised you or that you've noticed really clearly through this phase of your ministry? I think with God, I've noticed God is a whole lot more conservative and a whole lot more progressive than I thought. <laughs> There's places where like, yeah, I'm straight conservative, but don't even try it. And other places where like, man, yeah, that ain't me. I've kind of learned that with God. I've learned that I have to allow God to be God and stop trying to defend him because God is not a divine geriatric. I mean, God knows how to be God. <laughs> you know what I mean? He don't need defending. He needs surrender. And I think that, and I say that specifically because I realize in the culture, especially when it comes to Christians, no one's listening to what we're saying. They can't be listening to what we're saying because we're in this communication age. And in this communication age, people are not listening to what we're saying. They're listening to how we're living. They're listening to us from the inside out. And I've discovered that it's God that's given them that type of spiritual intuitiveness so that when our words are affirmed first by our actions, then our words have meaning. So for me, my Christian experience now and my Christian witness now 
is really just being in that lived space with people. And then when they get round to the conversations, having that conversation with them. You know, it's interesting. Remember the story of the woman at the well? You know why it's one of my favorite stories? All Jesus wanted was water. Jesus weren't asking the woman nothing theological, nothing, nothing. He said, sis, can I have a drink of water, please? Well, how are you being a Jew asking me for a drink of water? Girl, listen, if you knew who was asking you for a drink of water, you would give me a drink of water. Believe me, you would get water from me. What, are you a prophet? Jesus is like, well, yeah, I'm a prophet, blah, 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 blah. But up to now, read the story. We don't even know if Jesus got the drink of water. You know what I mean? But what Jesus did, Jesus carried the conversation as far and as deep as she was willing to take the conversation. Until Jesus turned around and said, go find your husband. That's when it turned the corner. Jesus went, all right, this ready. she's ready for a revelation. And so for me, it's staying in that live space and allowing their conversation to go as far and as deep as they want the conversation to go. Mm -hmm. I heard an Aboriginal elder say something. He said, Ed, we don't teach the young people their culture until they ask. Because when they ask, they're ready to learn. But if you have to constantly chase, 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 you're forcing it on them. So I said, well, what is the way around it? We just live it. We live it with pride. We live it with openness. And we live it in such a way that they are forced to ask us the questions. <laughs> but when they ask, they're willing to learn. And I was like, snaps. So I think for me, that's my approach to ministering to the culture and ministry in the culture yeah when it comes to standing alongside people you wrote in your book choosing to remain an island in the face of an oncoming storm can cause you to be swept away mm -hmm. um for people who are struggling and for people who are thinking about this idea of resilience can you flesh out what it means to invite people into our journeys then you know inviting people into your journeys is allowing yourself to be honest about where you are and how you're doing my approach has always been you need to find your own small space where you can be honest. And I think it's about allowing yourself to find people that you can trust. Because as humans, we are wired to live interdependently. We are not wired, as I said, to be islands. We are wired to know ourselves within the context of human relationships. We know that we can love because of our contacts with another human. We know that we can be strong or we can be impatient or we can be angry or we can hate because of our contact with other human beings. We're wired to know ourselves in that way. And so there's a part of us that has to trust. It's intuitive, it's counterintuitive as human being not to trust another human being. You have to trust because you are limited. You're limited, so you have to trust. And so I think the important thing is finding relationships with people that you can allow yourself to be honest with. You can allow yourself to be naked with emotionally, spiritually, socially, ethically, that you can allow them to see you as you actually are so they can help you be who you actually are. <laughs> because, you know, the struggle and the depression is a narrative based on a time and a space that you find yourself in. But it's not actually you. 
It's just a part of the world that is happening to you, a part of life that is happening to you and that you're responding to. But you are more than that situation. You are more than that narrative. And so for me, the important thing is about accountability, the accountability that comes from community, finding good friends, finding good mentors, finding good accountability people, you know, whether it be people that you know and you trust personally or just a therapist. <laughs> Like you can go to once a month and get it all out. As you were talking, I just reflected on the deeply relational nature of God and I guess how we're made in his image, you know, that idea that we need connection. I've heard a lot of um, 30-something, I've heard a lot of people in my age group say it's really hard to make friends as adults. It's really hard to find those connections. Do you have any practical pointers for people when they're looking for that maybe they feel isolated by life mm. by you know mm. not mm. connecting recently with the church community or sometimes mm. church communities can be unsafe places we have to acknowledge that sometimes yeah, it's hard to find people that we can yeah. be completely vulnerable and completely transparent and can give us that accountability that you're talking about i think the first thing that we have to accept and recognize though that a human relationship allows you to be totally naked and transparent, takes time to grow. <laughs> that, that don't just happen. <laughs> that takes time to grow. And so I think the first place that we can do is just create social networks. One of the struggles for a church community is we don't understand it, but we spend most of our life being divorced from the broader culture. You know, unless we work with them, we don't really have association with them because we don't know how to be around people that don't do a lot of the things that we do. We don't know how to be around them when they do what they do. Drinkers and smokers and people who club and people who party and people who just live life outside of what our spiritual norms and our spiritual values are. And so we don't know how to actually do life with those people. But if you allow yourself opportunity just to socially just journey with people, you know, there, there, are, there are organizations that get involved with things within your community. There are things that take place on your road. Your road sometimes has a Facebook page that you don't even know about. You know what I mean? And so I think that there are lots of spaces of social interaction. And also you can create spaces of social interaction. You can create spaces in which people can gather around projects and around hobbies and around special days. There are lots of things that we can do. We are wired as Christians to be social, but within the Christian bubble. And I think what you can do is extend all of those things outwards that you would normally do in that space to include other people. And I think within that space, that's where you'll begin to find solid people. There are friends that I have who are solid go-to friends and they are not Christian. They don't espouse Christianity. They have no plans on being a Christian, but they love me and they love being around me and they love my faith. And when they come to my house for dinner here, they bring non-alcoholic bottles of wine and they drink it at my table when I feed them. Why? Because my experience has rubbed off on them. Now, when I go to their house, I don't bring wine because I don't drink. But I'm not mad with them when they put their wine on their table. <laughs> I'm like, no, I'm, you know, outside of all of that, there is much more 
to a person's life. So I think we have to be actively involved mm. in creating those communities of connection, those contexts of connection. Mm. I think sometimes we can get frustrated when we run things in the church and be like, why aren't they coming to our stuff? But then we never do the opposite. Exactly. Exactly. You know, I've always said, you know, helping churches figure out how they navigate the culture. I always ask the question, if your church was to close, would the community miss your local church? And if the answer is no, it's because you're not here. Well, every church closed for two years. The question is, did the community miss us? <laughs> so I think those are part of understanding where we find ourselves and how we reestablish proper relationships now that everything is back open again. You mentioned a little bit before about this idea of surrender. Mm. And I once heard someone say, victory is in surrender, not struggle. And I think surrender is one of those things that for me, if someone has said, just surrender or give it to God or something, I'm always like, yeah, but how? What does surrender actually look like? And I once heard you talk about it in a way for me that was a light bulb moment. And, and so I'm wondering if you can share what surrender looks like. I've always believed that the struggle for the Christian isn't conversion. The struggle is surrender. Conversion simply means that I've turned my mind and my heart towards you. Surrender means I'm keeping some of my heart and my mind to myself, though. <laughs> what the spirit does, the spirit comes into the human experience and the spirit begins to grow the love of Christ and the heart of Christ and the mind of Christ into our human experience. And what we do is we fight that growth. That's what we do. The difference between the church at the cross and the church at Pentecost is vastly different. People think it was after the cross that everybody came together. No, no, no. It was after Pentecost. And even on the day of Pentecost, when Peter preached and baptized 5,000 on the day of Pentecost, Peter was a nationalistic, separatist, racist Jew. National, straight. But he was a surrendered, <laughs> nationalistic, separatist, racist Jew. Now he was on that space of no longer fighting. And so the Lord sends him the, the vision of the sheep with all the unclean animals and says, arise, kill and eat. He says, Lord, I can't do that, I'm a Jew. But don't call it coming in. And then, oh. and then he says, go to the house. And he goes to the Gentiles and he confesses to them. I have called you common and unclean, but I realize. And he had fellowship with them. But when the Jews came around, what did Peter do? Peter went back to being a nationalistic, racist, separatist Jew. Why? Because he was still on that journey of surrender. And surrender meant that he was fighting the growth and the change that the kingdom was trying to bring in his experience. And so when we talk about surrender and give it to God, you have to be honest and recognize where is it that you're fighting change? <laughs> where is it that you're fighting growth? Where is it that you are fighting transition? Because that is your journey of surrender. What did the spirit do? The spirit sent still growing Paul, Mr. Oh, the things I don't want to do, I do, and the things I do, I don't want to do, and I don't know what to do, help me, what do I do? He sent still growing Paul to still growing Peter. Peter said he showed me the better way. Paul said I showed him the better way. There are myriads of ways in which we fight the change and we fight the growth and we fight the transition. 
We fight it through procrastination. We fight it through excuses. We fight it through projection. We fight it through denial. But that's the true work. And it's difficult. I ain't going to lie. I struggle with surrender. I struggle. My journey in ministry, I remember while I pastored, my gospel was Jesus relationships and service and love and just being accused of being a preacher of low and no substance. And he'd be like, he's a preacher of low and no substance. Why? He talks too much about love and he talks too much about Jesus. And I remember one day saying to Jesus, I don't want to talk about love no more. Please, please, it's too hard. Let me go back to the easy stuff. Let me go back to the beasts and the prophecies and the and the Jesuits and and you know, please let me go back to that easy stuff. This love thing is too hard. I remember one time writing a sermon in tears. I don't want to preach this. They're like, boy, I ain't giving you nothing else to preach. I don't know what to say. It's either gonna be this or the Eddie Hippolyte show. You work it out. <laughs> I don't want to preach this. You know what I mean? And yeah, it was hard, but that's the process of surrender because you have to leave yourself behind. And sometimes you're afraid of, you're afraid because you can't see, you can't see all of the person that God has waiting for you down the road. And sometimes I ain't going to lie, that's scary. If you can trust that he knows what he's doing, you can trust the result that you can't see. Yeah. Your consultancy business, your current ministry, it's called Empowering Your Resilience. And I like that. I like to touch as we finish up just on the concept of resilience, having resilience. Mm. How do we get our, our resilience empowered? We don't want to steal your thunder and all the stuff that you're doing. But if you can give us some practical help, how do we as, as everyday people, as Christians, as people mm -hmm. who are struggling to surrender, how do we find resilience? How do we foster resilience in our lives, in our kids, mm -hmm. in our families, in our churches? Mm -hmm. How do we discover some of that resilience that we need? Resilience is not just the power to bounce back. You know, in a dictionary definition, and even a psychology definition, is the ability to bounce back, the ability to find yourself again after trauma, after upheaval. What is missing is why is that we're able to do that? We're able to do that because we remember the narratives that the trauma robbed us of. And that's what happens, upheaval, trauma, loss. It creates a narrative. You believe that narrative and you forget who you were. And I think my work in resilience is enabling people to remember the narratives that define who they were. So I think from just a practical point of view, you know, with our kids and with our friends and helping people unstick themselves, that we can all do is just ask, well, what stories are you telling yourself right now? What are the things that you've forgotten about yourself? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You're going through this now, but what has this made you actually forget about yourself? And sometimes we forget that I am actually a patient person. I am actually a loving person. I'm actually much more determined, you know? And so the question is then, well, why are you believing this now? Well, I'm believing this because of this situation. All right, well, let's now begin to deconstruct this situation and reconstruct the way you think about yourself. And I think what it is, is that now spurs people like, actually, hold on. I'm not just this weeping willow, this wilted flower. And then you begin to come back because you remember who you are. 
one of the reasons why I, I always say you journey in community is because sometimes, you know, you'll be friends with Xantia and Xantia finds herself in a space. And I'll say, hey, Zan, cha, you remember that time when, remember that time when we was at camp and you said, blah, 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 blah. And Xantia's just like, oh my gosh, how did I forget that? And all of a sudden the sun just shines in her mind again. Because what happens is when we journey in community, she may say something and I think, oh, that's so precious. But because she's so brilliant, she just throws out all these starbursts everywhere. And she's just brilliant, you know? And I'll catch it and I'll put it in my pocket. And without even knowing, Xantia finds herself in a space one day when she's down and I'll pull out that starburst memory and I'm saying, oh, Xantia, remember blah, blah, blah. And she's like, oh my gosh. And I think those are the ways in which we enable people and we empower their resilience. You remind your children and you remind your friends and you remind your loved ones and you remind your colleagues. It's the remembrance that empowers resilience because people come back to who they actually are. They make their journey back to who they are and then they grow further from that person too. And so, yeah, I, th I think that's the way we can do it. You know, help people remember the stories, help people remember who they are, help people journey. You know, yeah. And that's how you create good culture as well. I love that. Well, thank you so much for everything you've shared. I feel like we've just scraped the surface. <laughs> I do know that your book, Four Questions, is actually a free book. So you want that? Free and the audio book is free as well. If, you're, if you follow me on Instagram, go to the link in my bio, or you can go to my website, which is eyrltd.com. Go there and you'll see it on the main page and just download it and 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 in, please enjoy it do the work <laughs> i have a friend who is a counselor and she would just listen to the audiobook and she wrote to me and she said you know in the audiobook on the second question how are you you ask the question like how am i and this says yeah so how are you and i asked the question and then i asked the question the second time and she said it threw me off because i honestly felt that this was the first time at least during this period that anybody had even asked me how I'm doing. And she said, I paused it and I ran and got my journal. <laughs> and I started writing down how I'm doing. And then I continued listening. So I always said to people, do the work, do the work. I think you're gonna, you're gonna benefit. That's great. Well, Eddie, we really privileged to have you with us today. Thank you so much for your time. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you. <laughs> This is an Adventist Media Podcast.